Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, we are going to spend time with George McHale from Church Clarity, talking about the importance of the churches being clear with regard to their policies for the LGBTQ community. Before we get to that, however, one quick thing I want to remind you about is the Blueprint Retreat. It's a retreat that I launched because many of the conversations I'm having with people are those who've left their spiritual home and trying to sort out and understand what to include from their faith tradition and what they ought to leave behind. And it's a time for us to come together and consider what it might look like to begin the work of constructing something together and sketch a faith for the next season with the hopes that it could lead us to build something new. And so the retreat is November 8 through 10, 2019. Uh, we'll be in beautiful Breckenridge, Colorado, just below Treeline. So there's amazing views. Uh, you can get all the details on my website. There's a link at the top that says Blueprint Retreat. Space is very limited. There's only a few more spots, and we would love to have you join with us. But now, for today, I'm thrilled to introduce you to my friend, George McHale. George is the executive director and architect of Church Clarity. It's a social impact organization focused on establishing a new standard of clarity for Protestant churches. George has been in church leadership since 2011. He's a leader, a pastor, a writer, a dreamer, an activist, husband, and father, and an all-around good guy and good friend. George, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Yo, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, man. So first... Tell us a little bit about yourself. What should our listeners know about you? Sure. Yeah, I would say I was born in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, we immigrated when I was four years old to America. Um, I was born in the Coptic Orthodox Church, which is one of the oldest uh, strands of Christianity and uh, on the planet, and grew up Christian my whole life. So I bounced around from, uh, left the Coptic Orthodox Church when I was 12 to pursue uh, like young life type Protestant evangelical churches, <laughs> you know, going uh, going to camp and stuff with my friends, um, and just kind of been all over. So yeah, I've been a lifelong Christian, been been, been been deconstructing ever since right around the time I met you, I think 2014, 2015, and yeah. uh, married, two kids, have an 11 year old and a nine year old, and uh, yeah, just trying to figure out what we're all doing on this rock floating in space. <laughs> Aren't we all? And you and I, you just said we met, I, I couldn't remember how long ago it was, but it was here in Colorado at some house that was like a gathering for pastors and other people. Yeah. And um, you you and your church, East Lake Church in uh, Seattle, which at that point you were a part of in the leadership there, you were just about to announce full inclusion uh, for the your LGBTQ friends, for our LGBTQ friends in that community, and so can I'd love to start there. Like, what did what did you learn that led you to that process, and what did you learn through the process of of moving toward full inclusion? Yeah, well, I think what we learned leading up to it was just that we didn't really have everything figured out uh, as we thought we did for most of our lives. I think when you grow up and like sort of indoctrinated into a Christian worldview, you get to this place where you're like, okay. I know all the answers pretty much, and everyone. And now my job is to tell everybody else the good news or the gospel or whatever. I think the unknowing is sort of the first thing that begins to to kind of come apart when you start seeing the world differently and start seeing people differently and what your responsibility is as spiritual leaders. And so I think that was kind of the first big thing. Um, and then after leading our church through inclusion, I think one of the big revelations for me was that you know we probably 
didn't do it as uh, well as we could have. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and we were, we were um, frontiers at some level in that, in that world. And we were just kind of doing what we thought was best. And so no regrets, but I think looking back, Certainly, we could have done a better job of being more clear, as it were, in terms of bringing people um, along on our on our process, on our journey. Really, something that you guys at, at DCC modeled really well. Um, I think what two years two years later, right? Two thousand seven. Yeah. Well, and you guys were uh, both you and Ryan like threatened me and said, "If you do it the way that that we did, we're going to drive down there and kill you." <laughs> I think the language is a little bit more colorful than that, but this is a clean podcast, so I can't actually say what you said right. to me. <laughs> No, I remember it being pretty extreme. Like we, you know, we definitely learned some things. And watching um, DCC's process was was a much better example of how to lead a community through a process of actively discerning a new direction. So, uh, hats off to you guys for that. Well, thanks. So, what what was your church like? You mentioned you weren't clear in the process, but what was your church saying? to the LGBTQ community or about the LGBTQ community before you made the announcement of uh, full inclusion? So as far as evangelical churches goes, Eastlake was always sort of pushing the envelope, um, you know, annoying other evangelical churches in our area, canceling Sundays to watch the Seahawks or whatever. So <laughs> this, this was never, which was like really, really, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that, right? But it was, this was never really a, it wasn't like we were ever anti-LGBTQ or, um, or anything like that. It was just that we were pretty vague about where we were at and what, when the rubber met the road, what our policies were going to be. Uh, if the question came up, you know, will you, will you officiate my wedding to a same gender person or will you, uh, can I work here if I'm, if I'm queer? Um, we didn't really have the direct answers to those types of questions. And so the prevailing reality was just ambiguity. It was just, you know, uh, if, if something came up, we would take care of it kind of behind the scenes, you know, um, in the same way that even large evangelical churches, at least from my experience, take care of things that are inconvenient, like that they don't want to deal with directly or they don't want to pastor their way through, whether it's hey, we have a, a couple that's living together and they're leading a, a group. I remember this one specifically, this example. And it was like, we, we felt the need to police people's behavior and, and set these parameters. But when it came to LGBTQ people, it wasn't really something that we had like uh, policies written down or, or um, somewhere that was like accessible to people. It was just kind of case by case, make it up as you go and grasp onto this sort of vague evangelical theology that apparently says somewhere in Romans that homosexuality is, you know, not okay. And therefore probably we should enforce policies that, that look something similar to that, if that makes sense. So it was this just kind of like figure it out as you go along, kind of punt on, on this really difficult conversation until it confronts you right in the face. Um, and you know, as the story goes, that's, uh, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. You said earlier how you grew up in a world where you didn't question things. You were just kind of indoctrinated. And it it's so fascinating that with regard to this specific conversation around LGBTQ inclusion, so many of us it, who grew up in a more conservative Protestant tradition or Catholic tradition have just been told it's wrong. Right. Uh, and then as you were already alluding to, once that confronts you face to face, that conversation, and it becomes a living, breathing human being, 
it becomes really, really difficult to even sometimes even know how to navigate it because all of the answers we've been given have been about an object and now we behold the subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's that collision course. And so you, what was the response that you experienced when you tried to be a little bit more vague to use the word that you used? Mm-hmm. So, so I think for us in 2014, 15, when we were going through our process, I, I definitely wouldn't have described it in this way. This is all obviously the benefit of hindsight, but um, and I don't think we were trying to be vague as much as we were just trying to do our best to uh, navigate a, a situation that we felt called towards. Does that make sense? Like we we knew it was going to cost us uh, maybe our church, maybe our jobs to uh, to take this this stance. But that part of it didn't really matter. We we just we had already made the decision. So from there, it was just all about like, okay, how do we do this in a way that we felt was strategic? If that if that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, the response was, you know, people people were upset. There were a lot of people who were not happy with the rollout or the uh, how people responded to the rollout. And you know, there was I think some some of that that was sincere. There were sincere concerns about some of that stuff, but a lot of it seemed like you know people will basically just say anything in order to not have to say, well, I disagree with inclusion, therefore I'm I'm leaving. But you know, the result of Eastlake was we lost about half our people, half our budget, and um, all that kind of stuff that typically happens of churches, except for DCC. DCC is like the is the anomaly. I don't know, I don't know how y'all did it, but uh, you figured you figured out a way to to navigate in um, and, and keep people sort of together, which I thought was really impressive. So, um, and it's a testament to how clear you, you were, right? I, I remember even being with you, and sorry, I keep it. Keep, I hate to keep making this about. DCC and you, but I just remember watching. <laughs> That's the only reason I invited you on the podcast. I'm like, if anyone's going to talk about me, it's going to be George. Okay. So. I've been there. I was there when you, when you made the announcement and you played the video where you had your board walk through sort of the, the entire process. Yeah, let me mention better. that, by the yeah. way. You, you flew down from Seattle the weekend that we made the announcement in January 2017 simply to be with us, support us, encourage us, um, so at the beginning, when I said an all-around great guy, for those of you listening, that's not just me buttering him up. Like that's that's the kind of person George is. Like you, you came to be with us, and that meant so so much to us. Man, that was a that was a great weekend. Just being with your team and being with your staff, and even just recalling that you and John and David were, were with us three year, or two years prior. Yeah, that was just cool. It was all kind of full circle, but. So anyways, I don't remember what we were talking about, but clarity. Yeah, just the response of people. And what I've always been curious about is, and I ask this of a lot of, of, a lot of people, you can get a lot, you can get away with a lot um, in our industry, the, the church, pastoral industry, however you want to call it. You can get away with a lot um, on pushing the envelope theologically with a lot of different things. When it comes to the conversation around LGBTQ inclusion, that's the that seems to be the breaking point for a lot of people. And I'm curious in your experience, you talked about losing half the congregation. Why do you think that that's such a make it or break it conversation in a way almost nothing else is theologically? Yeah. Well, I think timing is a thing. I think timing matters and where, you know, where we find ourselves, this, this happens to be the sort of lightning rod conversation. Um, you know, thanks, thanks to LGBTQ advocates, I mean, themselves, they, like refusing to be silenced, refusing to be erased, a uh, huge, huge testament to their faith. Actually, the, a, a lot of them are simply a lot more Christian than the folks who are trying to tell us to, to exclude LGBTQ people. So 
I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, but I also think that the reaction is to the LGBTQ conversation, the, the overreaction, when in reality what's happening is people's entire constructs of what their faith is, their, their house of cards falls apart completely when you, when you start removing, you know, elements that they felt were critical. And, um, specifically, I think what we're, what we're noticing with, with clarity is the, the realization of the betrayal of like, once, once you wake up, you know, you wake up to realizing, wait a minute, I never had to exclude queer people ever before. This was, a, I was lied to essentially. I was, I was told one thing and, and the reality is something else. Yeah. The next question, the next set of questions become, well, what else have I been lied to about? What else in this faith construct is, you know, built on this house of cards that really is just someone else trying to impose their ideology on me or whatever. So I think the reaction to it is, is just a, it's a part of a bigger sort of the slippery slope anxiety that we get warned about is actually true. Like you start, you start pulling some of these things out and you're gonna have to ask, ask yourself a lot of questions about everything that you believe. Yeah. And, and, and it's important too, to, on that idea of asking the questions, I literally just came from having coffee with a friend of mine who's in town from California, who's a pastor out there. And we were talking about how if we lived a thousand years ago with the beliefs that we currently have about the Bible, about God, about salvation, about heaven and hell, it's very likely that we would be excommunicated if not burned at the stake as for being heretics. Mm. And so if you're listening and you have some unease about like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like I'm worried about the slippery slope. Um, it, in some ways that can be real, but I think it's also helpful to begin digging into not just what you believe, but the history of it mm-hmm. and discovering that it's like everything else. Our beliefs continue to evolve and evolution's never done. So we're at a particular place in a stage, as you pointed to, in, in a place in time, but we're continuing to see this thing move forward. And that's the natural order of things. Not the, It would be unnatural to try to stop it. Yes. Um, I love that. I think, I think too, uh, maybe a better illustration is Pandora's box versus a slippery slope. Sounds like you're like, Oh no, I'm like out of control. And I'm, I don't know where this leads to. Whereas Pandora's box, you can look at it more expansively where it's like, once you start questioning one of these things, what, what are the, what are the other possibilities? How, what else can you reframe that maybe you just haven't seen through the right lens throughout your whole life because of your indoctrination? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you guys go clear. I mean, you, you state for the first time what your position is very clearly. And George mentioned that we, uh, several of us were up in Seattle the weekend that they made this announcement. And that was one of the big instigators for us to come back to Denver and say a non-position is not a position. Mm-hmm. And we learned a lot from you guys in that process. And and you finally said, here's where we're at. Um, and so take us from that moment in 2015 to you launching Church Clarity and some of the motivation of what you learned through that process into launching Church Clarity. And tell us, too, a little bit more about what Church Clarity is. That'd be great to hear. Yeah, definitely. So outside of conversations with DCC, there were very few. I mean, there was Gary Hale and um, there's a few other conversation partners where you got the sense when you talked to them that there was sincerity in sort of the question asking, right? Like, like talking to you and John uh, throughout that that process after Eastlake became inclusive was always refreshing because you actually you asked the same kind of questions we were asking, you know, a couple of years prior. 
And uh, the thing that became frustrating, though, was the majority of the conversations didn't sound like our conversations or my conversations with Gary Hill. They were more like really surfacey level. Hey, we're rooting for you. Great job. Pat on the back. And then no follow up in terms of, you know, the same type of private support that you show us is, is being shown publicly. And so after after experiencing enough of those, I got to a place where I was like, you know what? I don't really want to do the whole, I'm going to try to convince people to become affirming thing. I'm going to, I'm going to go on this new evangelism tour where I'm going to talk to pastors and tell them, hey, I became affirming. You sh- here's why you should do it too. Um, <laughs> I, just, I learned really quickly that that was fruit, fruitless and exhausting and I didn't want to do it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what I also noticed was that there was, there was this condition of saying one thing privately and doing something else, saying something else completely different publicly. And I think there was a couple you know, milestones along the way that, that revealed that, sort of helped inspire Church Clarity's existence, uh, one of them being InterVarsity coming out with an 18-page paper on human sexuality, which pleased nobody, basically. But you know, in 18 pages, they articulated, here's where we're at on human sexuality, and they came out with a very, quote-unquote, non-affirming position. But look, it was clear. And it was it was it was one of those moments where I'm in the middle of this and I'm watching kind of the, how the landscape plays out and I'm, I'm kind of having these conversations that are behind the scenes, and I'm like, man, I just wish some of these pastors that I talk to, some of their churches, could be as clear as InterVarsity about their theology. Uh, I may disagree with it, and I very much do disagree with it, but I I can at least respect the the thoughtfulness of, hey, here's 18 literal pages of what we think, you know, so. So, so yeah, so I just got to a place where I was like, instead of trying to convince people, I'm just going to advocate for this level of clarity and uh, basically just gave up on, you know, this is the right position or this is the wrong position or here's why, here's what Romans actually says and here's how you have to read the Greek. Like, ah, just let your yes be yes, let your no be no. What is your actively enforced policy? If someone comes up to you today and asks, will you hire me and they're gay, what are you going to say? Uh, and so that was, that was the genesis of it was, was just kind of that disillusionment and, and dissatisfaction with conversations around, again, trying to, to convince people, uh, about a f- certain theological position. And at the same time, realizing the need for accountability when it comes to these, this misleading rhetoric that transpires in churches. Yeah. And what, what, so what has been the response to that, both from, I would say from multiple sectors. So obviously there's the response from that you're going to have from church leadership. Uh, but what about the response from the LGBTQ community and, and framed in that is why, what's the importance um, of this conversation and what is it that really motivated you beyond people publicly saying one thing and privately thinking another, what was some of the other motivations behind that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the response has been phenomenal. I mean, it's been unlike anything I've, I've seen before. And I, I still try to wrap my head around like, wow, we really have tapped into something that's pretty remarkable. Uh, for LGBTQ people who have been in situations where they've been misled, where really all they ever wanted was just let me know, you know, if, if I'm not actually welcome here, just stop saying that. And then I'll go somewhere where I am welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's been a really common response. This just like the sigh of relief. Like finally, I can at least n- like not have to worry about walking into a place and waiting for the next shoe to drop. And so that has been really encouraging and validating. 
And, and let me point out one of the things I've learned is I was in a position for a long time where I tried to be really clever. So someone would ask me directly, you know, what do you, what do you believe about same sex marriage? And I would try to work around the answer thinking my, in, in my own self, like, well, I've dodged that one again. And what I learned is what it ultimately did to um, both the LGBTQ community and their allies is it told them, hey, this is a safe place. So you can come here, uh, you can sing. We'll definitely take your your tithe and your financial gifts, 100%. Um, but when it comes time to lead a small group, when it comes time to teach on the platform, the answer is no. And that's, that is what, what I've learned. It was that betrayal was like a double wounding. It was a re-traumatizing mm-hmm. thing because they had believed in me, believed in us, only to have the rug pulled out from under them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that wounding of being unclear, that was a lot of the, the motivation of we, we have to be clear about this one way or the other at DCC. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that realization, I remember that same realization in my context was a little bit humiliating. You're just like, what did, oh, it, yeah. what, what did we think we were offering people like proximity to us of like, Oh, well at least you could hang out here. And <laughs> aren't we so great because we're, you know, we're not as, at least we don't like stand outside with um, God hates gay people signs. At, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what delusion we were under, but yeah, that was an embarrassing one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And what's been the response from, uh, from pastoral leaders? So it's been mixed. I mean, I think at first there's skepticism if you're someone who holds, you know, conservative theology, but if you're someone who actually embraces and has conviction in a conservative theology and you take the time to read between the lines and engage with church clarity, your initial response might be different than what your, um, once, once you've read up on it, uh, response is, which is a lot more like, Oh, this is, this seems reasonable. Yeah. I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that's, that's my position. Um, but I think there's a lot of fear sort of on the right side of the theological spectrum of like, what's the hidden agenda behind this and all that kind of stuff. Uh, on the on the left side of the theological political spectrum, I would say there's obviously more enthusiasm. There's more excitement. There's, there's, um, there's a level of, uh, I think, um, I don't want to say confusion, but I, but I do think that some people think that church clarity is more of an advocacy type of organization for their, whether it's LGBT inclusion or women in leadership or future initiatives that we're, that we're discussing. And um, while that is a byproduct of what we do, advocacy work, it's not, it's not our pure mission. Our pure mission actually is just clarity. And we are trying to actually change the conversation and, and, and say, whether, whatever the contents of your policy are, whatever the contents of your clarity is, clarity is reasonable. And so it's, it's kind of this interesting dynamic because uh, you, you have to kind of read between the lines to get clarity about church clarity because it's simple. It's, it's kind of more simple than, than you would probably expect or anticipate, but it's not what you would, uh, it's not what you would Im- initially assume just based on some of the headlines. Yeah. Okay. And, and listening to you talk, I was just struck by the fact that it's fascinating to me that an organization is needed to get pastors to tell the truth <laughs> in the pulpit. Right? Like that's insane. <laughs> and it is needed too. It's like, and, and people ask like, well, what's the end game or what clarity? Like what, then what? And I just always laugh at that because I'm like, you know what? 
you try to get clarity and then and then come talk to me about what are you going to do after we you, there's 350,000 churches in America we, right we've we've scored over 3,000 and we got a long way to go but well you're one per, that's like nearly 1% right so well done <laughs> eight, eight months in so it's it's fascinating that people think that there's sort of this underlying or hidden agenda when it's like you know, actually, just clarity would be great if we could just get that. If we could just get churches to tell the truth, uh, then maybe other opportunities will open up for conversations. I certainly hope so. But right now, we're laser focused on just getting pastors to tell the truth, like you said. So I have a friend here who put out a tweet not long ago about uh, getting really tired of hip, use the uh, in quotes, hip churches and hip pastors sounding like they're inclusive. But when you drill down into their theology, they're actually not. Mm. And um, I, I wonder. Sounds like something I tweet. What's yeah? <laughs> well, and but it is. It's again. I think furthering that wound that I talked about that I was a part of, um, and that I've I've had to confess and and seek forgiveness for. Um, but what's the motivation, as you understand it in the work that you've done, what's the motivation behind a lot of that? Behind the lack of clarity, maybe I'll say, and maybe you know, I'm asking you to. For conjecture, mm-hmm. um, but what have you seen and experienced as the motivation behind being a little less clear? I mean, I hate to oversimplify. When I get asked this question, I always hate to oversimplify it. But I do want people to walk away with the clear answer of money. Like I, I want you to hear, like money is the reason. Now, there's a bunch of things that you can layer on top of that, but at the end of the day, the only reason to not is because you're afraid of losing money. You're afraid of losing. All the things that come with money and power and influence and prestige and in some some like hipster evangelical circles that includes celebrity and that includes uh, a lot of money, not just you know not just like a, a a full-time pastor job. So, and I think the reason I say that so confidently, and it is just a conjecture, like I'm someone might have a better answer, but the reason I, I feel confidently about it is because clarity is actually proving itself to be reasonable across the theological spectrum. And so it's not a matter of, well, it's easy for progressives to be clear and you're a progressive organization advocating for clarity so that whatever, because, you know, conservatives that actually have conviction that aren't worried about protecting their little empires and aren't worried about what's going to happen to their Sunday attendance or their tithe the next week, if they say with clarity, here's what our convictions are, here's what our actively enforced policies are. I mean, you have to just look at that and, and at face value and say, okay, so then what, what would be the motivation for not telling the truth? And so money really is the only thing that I can really point to as the most salient issue. And again, we could probably unpack like nuances within like, oh, well, this person's in a tough situation or whatever. But like, I've just gotten to a point where I'm like, if you can't tell the truth, then you're hiding something. Uh, for a reason. And it's probably because you're afraid you're going to lose something significant. It is money. But for a lot of people, like there is a trap. And so I don't want to come across as saying it's greed necessarily, or it's um, there's a, a like a personal sort of like hoarding mentality or um, yeah, greed. Like it's not always just because it is money. It's not always greed. Like money can be a really practical thing that some people just feel trapped in or find themselves like I just went to Bible college and now I'm a pastor and I'm trying to lead this church and I'm, and I'm stuck. And it's like, and I'm, 
Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for offering that. I, I, I think for me, it was recognizing I'm not putting my own job on the line. I'm putting the jobs of others on the line. Right. And there's also that piece too, which was a little bit anxiety. It drove some anxiety. And it, it's uh, worth noting that truth tellers throughout history are often, yeah, I would say are often relegated to the margins in their own time. Mm. I mean, you, you think about the prophetic, uh, and you're not even talking about prophetic, you're talking about clarity. But if you're going to really take up the mantle of we're going to be prophetic, in that we're going to proclaim the true and the good and the beautiful. In their own time, we don't know what to do with people like that. Mm-hmm. It's usually after that person is dead and buried that people in power use that individual for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look at Martin Luther King Jr., how he's been repurposed mm-hmm. um, millions of different ways. And so I do think it's interesting that what, what you're doing in so many ways is encouraging people toward that to, to speak what they believe to be true. Mm-hmm. And even that, uh, in some ways you're calling people into a, into a truth telling, into a prophetic world that a lot of people aren't really interested in. Yeah, it is scary. I mean, it, it's not, it, it's not easy, right? Clarity is, is simple, but it's not, it's not easy. And it usually does cost you something for better or worse to come to terms with your own convictions and to look in the mirror and say, okay, this is what I believe and here's why I believe it. And yeah, I really do believe it. And it's going to actually inform the actions of my life and it's going to shape my character. And that's hard work. That's, that's the spiritual journey. And I think for too long, especially in Western society, we've kind of gotten comfortable with just kind of going through the motions and uh, abdicating our beliefs to a system, letting the system believe on our behalf, essentially. Hmm. And as more of us wake up to the damages that that's done, like what, what happens when you abdicate that huge, huge responsibility of embracing your beliefs and animating it in the world? Well, some evil systems end up animating your beliefs on your behalf because you've just given it your power, your time, your money. And so I think I think that's part of the work of clarity too, is just helping people come to the place where, again, they can look in the mirror and say, what, what am I giving power to? What am I giving life to? And where do I need to stop? Yeah. So if, if a church is going to be scored on churchclarity.com, what does that process look like? So, yeah, so, so we have a team of about 90 or so volunteers that meet on Slack. Um, they're international, so we have people <laughs> check in from all over the world. And we've created a, a process um, of scoring churches based on um, unclear to, or sorry, undisclosed is the, is the sort of lowest, worst score. It means we can't find anything about your, your church's policy anywhere. Then unclear with a designation of either uh, affirming or non-affirming, egalitarian or non-egalitarian for our two our two scores and then that, and explain those those two things egalitarian non egalitarian what's yep. that so that's our scoring for women in leadership policy so uh lgbtq policy was what we launched church clarity with uh, about 18 19 months ago and then later five months later so we added women in leadership scoring just to kind of show that you know we're creating a tool that's going to be more dynamic than just a single uh policy it's going to have multiple, and if it weren't for capacity issues, we'd have more than just the two that we have right now. But uh, egalitarian score basically just says that women can lead it with no limitations. And women can can preach, women hold positions of leadership. Our egalitarian scores also look at representation. So even if 
you say that you will hire a woman to, or you you say that a woman can preach, if that's not really represented anywhere, like if, if a woman isn't on your leadership team or is, hasn't preached at your church in years, then we're like, ah, you're not really egalitarian. So that's how that scoring works. And then we'll score based on clear, unclear with those designations. And so sometimes it'll take uh, up to 25, 30 minutes to score a single church. Like we do pretty extensive research. And, and what we're doing right now is looking at how policy is communicated on a church's website. So our whole thesis basically is that's your that's your front door. That's how you're trying to, in 2019, that's how you're trying to get people to come to your church. And that's how people find you, even if you're not trying to sort of hook them in. So your church should be the place where it's easiest to find out who you are and, and learn more about you. So churches that sort of don't participate with church clarity's verified clear system, which is where that represents our highest and best score, our team will score them one of one of those uh, other non-verified scores. Whereas verified clear, our, our best score basically is we send a policy survey to churches with very simple yes or no questions. Will you hire? Will you marry? Will you baptize? Can a woman preach? That kind of thing. And any church that responds with their answers receives a verified clear score which means we drop the egalitarian, non-egalitarian, affirming, non-affirming uh, designation because they're clear. We don't need to add any more to that. We're letting their yes be yes, their no be no. And so you can have two verified clear churches side by side that answered the questions completely different, but they both receive a verified clear score. Does that make sense? Yep, 100%. So, yeah, that's how, that's how the scoring works. And so in 18 or 19 months, you've knocked out 3,000 churches. Yep. All crowdsourced to the website. So people go on churchclarity.org. They submit a church and usually it's it's going to be someone who went to a church and was misled. And so they want to see that church scored on our website or it's someone who's a part of a church that can't wait to be clear. And, and that's a big part of the, the response that we're, that we're receiving is, oh my gosh, thank you so much for this resource. This is great. I'm very excited to proactively disclose. Like when we have churches now, when they receive a verified clear score, we just have one they like shot this video and they were super excited. They're like, we are excited to announce that we are verified clear on church clarity. And it was so great. I'm like, I love that people are actually embracing this and seeing it as a valuable resource and taking pride and like, yeah, we're clear. Here's our policies, read them and weep, you know, because I think the church lost some of that, you know, as it's become more commercialized and it's become sort of more co-opted by capitalism, we've lost some of our truth telling um, DNA. And so in a lot of ways, Verify Clear, I think, is giving churches a little bit, I mean, in a small way right now, maybe we'll, we'll get more critical mass and it'll, it'll be a bigger deal. But it's just kind of cool to see some of these churches get the, get a little bit of swagger back. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important, the idea of allowing ourselves to be known, um, both as an organization, as leadership, as individuals, to, to, to name it with great clarity. I just listened to the sermon delivered at uh, UBC Waco, University Baptist Church Waco. This is the church that birthed the um, both Chris and Robbie C. and Dave Crowder, and they just moved toward uh, inclusion. And I'm telling you, if you're listening, look up UBC Waco, give yourselves 30 minutes, listen to the sermon preached by their lead pastor, Josh, who's a wonderful guy, and you hear exactly what George is talking about. He's incredibly clear. He even takes a part in the sermon to say, let me be clear on what this means for me. And then his compassion that comes with it. And I think this is the, 
this is really one of the things that I was excited about for us to talk with George today is this is not pushing people up against the wall and getting in their face. It's saying, we, we want to invite you to be in a place where you're known, where you can be honest and you can share that without fear of reprisal. Mm-hmm. And as someone who speaks oh, 30 some weeks a year at Denver Community Church, to be able to stand up on the platform and just be honest um, and knowing that everything's out there before I get up is, is such a freeing experience. And if you're listening and you, you don't know where your church is at, um, I would encourage you that if you can speak to your pastor, you will see them wherever they are in this conversation when there's greater clarity publicly about who they are, what they believe, what they're doing, what they're up to, you will see a marked improvement in almost an intangible way in the week-to-week teaching because there's going to be greater authenticity on the platform and greater vulnerability on the platform. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're that's what you're encouraging and that's what the work you are uh, that you're involved in is doing. Um, what's the ultimate hope for church clarity? Is it really to score 350,000 Protestant churches in the United States <laughs> or globally? Or Yeah, definitely. I think that is... That's the goal is, you know, uh, the biggest reason that we exist is just as a uh, evolution of technology, right? So without the internet, there would be no church clarity. And so there's just a very real kind of boring practical element of we're here because we're building a database that you couldn't possibly ever even imagined existing five, 10 years ago, right? And so where this goes, I think, can get really exciting. And so uh, I try to hold the outcomes pretty loosely because I don't. We're learning so much about the church landscape and the posturing and how afraid some of these like really big evangelical mega churches are of of clarity. You know, like Brian Houston from Hillsong blocked us on Twitter just literally just for asking really simple questions. And and I, I, I try to do my best to just kind of. I, like, I want to point out though, it was after you guys pushed on Hillsong mm-hmm. that they came out with greater clarity. Mm-hmm. So they may not be on the website, but I've seen where you've you've pushed on that Mm -hmm. and it's resulted in people stating things more clearly, which, again, well done. Thanks. Yeah, no, I hope so. And I think we've we've had a couple of responses. Uh, We did a story on Andy Stanley's church, North Point, uh, that that he responded to. I ended up having a personal conversation with him. And so I mean, we really are sincere about trying to change the conversation because uh, the the tone and the strategies that we have right now for navigating some of this, this division that is prevalent. It's not, it's not as if we're not divided, right? People, people are sometimes like, well, this is so divisive. Church clarity is like, you're just tearing the body of Christ apart. I'm like, I don't know if you've noticed, but the church is like ripped into at least two right now, if not several pieces. We're basically <laughs> just walking through triage and be like, hey, all right, so let's maybe if we just all kind of take account here of what's going on, and uh, Phyllis Tickle uses this illustration of, of a, a rummage sale that I love so much for yeah. our, our times. I, got, I feel like that's kind of what we're doing. We're kind of taking, like, wh- what is this even? What is this church and what does it become? Three hundred? Do we need 350,000, first of all? What are these 350,000? Because I think by the end of it, we're going to realize that uh, there's there's a lot more to this church than, than you know, Franklin Graham sound bites and... Um, and I think that's a big part of the outcome I'm desiring too, is to have separation from that. I'm, I'm sort of 
one of those people that's tired of, of Jerry Falwell speaking for Christianity. I don't know who mm-hmm. gave him the mic and said, you're the ambassador, but that's what's happened. And as much as we want to distance ourselves through, well, my theology is this, and this is the Jesus I know. Like at the end of the day, Franklin Graham speaks for you if, if you are Christian. And I don't know how else to say that. It's like when people are like, not my president about Trump. I'm like, well, are, I mean, do you pay taxes? Are you an American citizen? Like, cause he's your president. You may not agree with him. And I hate saying, like, I'm, I'm just, again, just for clarity's sake, like Franklin Graham is the most well-known Christian probably on planet earth. And so if you are somebody who's like, I'm a Christian at any level with no, you know, without going into your disclaimers and your qualifiers for that, Franklin Graham speaks for you. And that is a problem. And so I think part of clarity is addressing that problem in a, in a you know roundabout way, but hopefully, hopefully that's part of the effect is, uh, yeah, we get, we get down to who's, who's, what Jesus are we even talking about here? Yep. Yep. And, and we often talk here at DCC about how we want to say, well, I'm not that kind of Christian, but <laughs> the, the, prevailing culture, the rest of the world doesn't make all those distinctions. Right. And the media doesn't make those distinctions. And so you might not want, you know, whether it's Franklin Graham or your, you know, uncle Charlie from Maine at the dinner table. But the reality is twofold. A, they, in the minds or in the public side, they do speak for you. Mm -hmm. And then second, at some level we have to grapple with, are, are these our siblings? Yeah. And, and how do we begin to, again, speak truthfully and bring honor to that conversation? Um, let me ask you this as we conclude our time. It, let's say I live in St. Louis mm-hmm. and I've been burnt by a couple of different churches where I thought maybe I was welcome, but I'm not. What do I do? Uh, or maybe I'm moving to San Diego. What do I do to like what, what, what purpose does a church clarity offer or what, what services does it offer if I'm looking for? a church that's either affirming or non-affirming and I want to know about it. Yeah. I, th- I mean, this, this is really like one of the most practical ways that people use churchclarity.org is just to find a church on a Sunday. So people are uh, going on there looking for a church near them, uh, lo- looking for verified clear churches, reading what their policies are, and then attending them. I mean, th- we get story after story. Hopefully you've seen some people at DCC come as a result of finding you on, on church clarity. Just met another couple this weekend. Nice. No joke. That's amazing. And so that's, um, that's definitely a byproduct of, of the resource that we're, that we're cultivating. So, uh, free service that you go on and you search for a church and you can find one. And at the same time, I think people are also like using it as a way to, uh, to vet, uh, churches or stories that they hear or friends church or whatever. And, um, so yeah. So, and if somebody wants to get involved, you talked about the crowdsourcing, you talked about volunteers, what, what, what would be some steps they could take to get involved with Church Clarity? So the easiest way is to go on churchclarity.org and uh, either submit a church to be scored. Uh, like, like I mentioned, you can also find a church that you're looking to attend, but also we'd love to have you volunteer if you're interested and uh, join our scoring team. Again, you can do it. All you need is an internet connection. And that's basically it. There's, there's a bunch of different ways to get plugged in on, on the website. So um, do that because we have a long way to go. There's still 349,000 left. So, or 47,000. Yes. 
<laughs> Easy. That's another 180 months by uh, current current averages. <laughs> we got this. We got this. I, gotta, I have no idea how many years that is, but it sounds like a lot. <laughs> um, so if, if our listeners want to find you, you've said it a few times. Tell, I said earlier, churchclarity.com. It's not .com. It is... .org. Yeah, they'll both get you there. But yeah, churchclarity.org, uh, at churchclarity, and on Facebook, on Twitter. So, and if people can find you personally online, where? Um, I'm at G McHale, G-M-E-K-H-A-I-L at tw- uh, on Twitter. Perfect. Well, and we will have a link to both of those in the episode description on the podcast. So brother, so good to have you on the podcast. So good to hear from you, talk to you, see your face. Thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. And thank you all again uh, for joining with us for another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. My hope is that we will see that truth telling is not just the absence of lies and falsehoods, but truth telling also includes stating everything that you believe to be true and doing that with clarity. So may we all pursue this kind of truth telling and invite the leaders of our local faith communities to do the same. And so that is it for today. Once again, thank you for joining with us. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.